Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 222, Emerging. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And we are here today, as we often are these days, with a returning guest. So we're really excited to welcome back Joshua Lesser. And when I was looking over my notes, I realized that, Josh, you were here for episode 35. It felt to me like when we had you on last time, it was like we, we were already veterans and we knew what we were doing and we were, you know, meeting new people that we didn't already know. And now looking back now from the perspective of episode 222, it feels like that was actually a very long time ago and we didn't know what such we were doing. Youths we were such young whippersnappers. Yes, young, such young podcasters only six months in. Anyway, we are thrilled to have you. So just as a couple of words of introduction, Josh Lesser is the rabbi at Congregation Beit Haverim in Atlanta, Georgia, which is a very interesting place uh, for all kinds of reasons. Well, first of all, Beit Haverim is an interesting place, just to remind folks that it is a what uh, you called a gay and lesbian founded synagogue, and now is uh, a synagogue that has that history and, and now focuses on all kinds of folks. And uh, it's important, I think, for this conversation to note that it is in Atlanta, Georgia, which there are two uh, interesting things about Georgia and Atlanta, Georgia. Well, there are a lot of interesting things about it, but the uh, in terms of the times that we're in, one is that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, is based in Atlanta. And the second is that Georgia is one of the early states attempting in some fashion to, quote, reopen uh, after or during the uh, COVID-19 crisis. The wild, wild south, as <laughs> I like to call it. So, Josh, first of all, welcome to, welcome back to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you. So we, we wanted to talk to you before, certainly before Georgia started uh, this attempt to reopen in whatever fashion, but also not even realizing or thinking about the fact that the CDC is in Atlanta. We were interested in talking to you because you've started a, a couple of Facebook groups for clergy and, uh, and for, I guess, uh, Jews in particular uh, about the high holidays. And a lot of what you were writing in there were, were things that we'd been thinking about and saying, and it was really interesting to hear them from the perspective of a congregational rabbi, because sometimes Lex and I think that what we're saying is uh, kind of yelling into the wind, you know, and it's not really going to be all that popular in the world of existing Jewish institutions. But but you were saying a lot of the, the same types of things. In particular, the thing that really struck a chord with me was something that you wrote, I think, relatively early on in the in the COVID crisis, where you said that you didn't think that we were going to be going back to where where we were before, even though people are talking in that language. And instead, you saw it as something, a form of emerging. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you meant back then and, and how you've continued to think about it in, let's say, the month or so since you originally wrote that. I appreciate that. And, in, you know, in some ways, even as you were reflecting on episode 35 to today and you know, kind of looking at what a significant difference that you've made. Um, I look back at when I made that statement, and even though it wasn't nearly that long ago, I don't think I had as much knowledge as I have today um, to realize how prescient 
in many ways that that was. And so, you know, I was noticing back then that even, even in a very quick, short way, that there were subst- substantive things that were changing in the ways that we were thinking and how were we, how we were engaging. And so it felt really important for us to not have this, we're going back mindset, but to begin to think about how we're going to emerge. What are the lessons that we're going to be able to take from this? And so, as I believe that this is going to be quite a much longer journey than I certainly, and probably many of us um, imagined, I think that there now are a lot of systems that will begin to break down. And in terms of the how it impacts my life directly is I think that already the nature of what is a synagogue and a lot of the structures that support synagogues were already fragile in terms of what does membership mean. And so if you just think about, you can stream into any service, you know, nearly around the world. We've had guests from Israel. We have um, visitors from other places. This whole idea of the membership model and how you create and form community um, folks that had moved away um, who, you know, maybe we would see once every three years when they came back to Atlanta are now attending services regularly. And I had a congregant tell me, hey, this allows me to go back to my synagogue where I grew up in, so you're not going to see me on Friday nights. So I think that um, there are really powerful ways where we are reimagining community and then looking at what are the things that we need to do for support. And simple old-fashioned phone calls, for instance, have really made a difference to a lot of people who feel incredibly isolated, where that was not something that we as a synagogue were consciously calling our members as we are today. So I think those are some very simple examples, but when those start breaking down, you begin to kind of very quickly start thinking about, okay, what are, what's going to emerge if we were, quote-unquote, to go back to normal, which I don't think is possible, what are those things that we would then begin to carry through? And then what are things that are permanently damaged? One of the positive trends that I'm seeing is, is that there's a desire to support one another cross-denominationally. So when I go to kind of thinking about High Holy Days, you know, what would it mean for us to be able to offer different modules or for communities to shine in different ways? And there were clusters who were offering things. So we weren't all having to work so hard in this area of, kind of competition um, and potentially what may even be that we're not really talking about yet is competition for our sustainability, our financial well-being. How do we begin to share resources that way? I believe that's the frontier of the next conversations. I mean, when you talk about the idea of emerging, and I apologize if you wrote this in the original post, I don't remember, but um, I think about a caterpillar and a butterfly, that there's this idea that you were one thing, and then you went into a certain process of, what's it called with caterpillars? Uh, Metamorphosis. And the chrysalis. 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 I was thinking crystallization, but yeah, so chrysalis. And, and then you emerge as something generally a, a lot different. Although actually, you know, when you look at a butterfly, you actually do see the caterpillar there. It's, it's not completely gone. Um, sure. but, um, but I, I, um, but I'm thinking about how the, um, 
the, one of the mistakes is that if you if you immer if you understand, I guess I guess like I'm thinking, we've also used the the metaphor of the Exodus and that we're in the wilderness, and the question is kind of well, where do you go after the wilderness? And you know, it's interesting because in the story of the Torah, it's like the people that are are in trouble are the people that are saying we want to go back to Egypt. The people who are the good people, you know, you kind of say no, no, we should still keep going on. And, and I'm thinking about you know, it's almost like you go you go into a cocoon into the chrysalis, and then it's like. And then it's over and we're back to being a caterpillar, you know, or or no, we can emerge as a, as a butterfly. And the there are two pieces that I kind of wanted to explore with you about that. One is is what might the butterfly look like and, and why do we think we're in a process of emerging and change as opposed to that we could go back? I think that that's one of these questions that we, we need to sharpen our answer to. Why can't we just go back why, after this is over? But then also what what might that uh, butterfly look like? But the other piece that I think is really important to, to press on is is that when you're in the chrysalis or when you're in the wilderness, that is a short-term situation that shouldn't be evaluated so so you know with all these kind of, in my opinion, with, with all kinds of you know measurements and analytics, because it's actually not representative of, of the past or the future. You know, and that there's something that I, I kind of feel people are making a, a certain kind of analytical mistake by saying, oh, what's working now a month or two months after this, you know, this this incredible upheaval that we were co completely unprepared for. And if people are watching a lot of digital stuff, that means that's the future. And if people are ebbing in their digital consumption, that means, oh, it wasn't really a big deal. You know, but no, this is a chaotic period, a, an interim period that is actually part of a, a process of, of evolution. And so how do we even think in a time like this? Or how are you thinking in a time like this? Well, so to me, there's this incredibly important layer that when there is such substantive change, that there needs to be a pastoral and spiritual process that goes alongside whatever the practical and the technological changes and shifts are. And so sometimes I think that we lose sight of that piece. So when I think about the chrysalis, what I'm aware of is, is that it actually is a tight container so that the what's happening in there, the caterpillar, somewhat I'm assuming painfully, has to press up against the boundaries in order for something new to emerge. And so there is a great deal of loss and pain that we're experiencing right now. And that is uh, human beings who want to seek comfort or seek pleasure uh, or just pleasant I, you know, that there is a way where I think we do try to go to that short term. And so often that short term is the flesh pots of Egypt. <laughs> like we want to go back um, rather than trust and step into the unknown. And I think that's where spiritual concepts end up being incredibly important. Um, for me, this, uh, this idea of, there's a quote that Pema Chodron um, talks about. She used to have it over her desk and has the word annihilation in it. And so that often freaks people out, but I actually gravitate towards it. And it says that the more that we expose ourselves to annihilation, the more that we will uncover what is indestructible about us. This is a process of letting go, letting go, letting go. And so I think that we're often trying to find the resolution or the answer before we do the letting go. And um, we happen to know what the process is for the caterpillar, but I don't know if the caterpillar knows what the process is, right? It knows it has to go through something. And so I think that part of it is, do we have the tools and do we have the support of one another to be able to kind of step into that unknown, to be able to see what will emerge rather than to kind of 
move into that game of prediction. And, it, and to be honest, it's why I set up the first Facebook group is because I wanted to create a field where people could talk about what are the spiritual challenges and be tender, vulnerable, and raw about it without having to kind of, you know, a lot of, particularly in the Jewish world, but most clergy like to be very presentable and look like everything is okay rather than kind of say, wow, this is truly crazy. It is upsetting. And I don't know how I'm going to lead in this moment. I'm really excited generally by the way that you think, um, but, it, but also specifically by a, a couple of things that you, that you said kind of in passing, but that I think are, are huge. Um, and so I want to try and unite two things that came up so sure. far. So one is that you advocated for some kind of clusters. You advocated that in, as opposed to communities each on their own creating some kind of high holidays. I mean, you were talking about high holidays. I don't, I don't think this just applies to high holidays personally, uh, but like the idea that in this digital universe where it's a universe, but also we're all like in the same kind of, I don't know, local place, like we're all able to access it. Um, there might be a benefit in beyond anything we've thought of before, beyond like the the seven synagogues in the city having a little joint council or whatever, like a much a much more expansive kind of clustering. I think that's huge. So that's number one. And the other thing you said that you said quickly was you have some people that are located all around the country that are coming to your services super regularly. And also, and this is the part, like I hear rabbis say that frequently with their live stream. Ah, this allows people who moved away a few years ago to come in. What I don't always hear is the other side, which you know has to exist by definition, which is some people who were coming to our community in person are going elsewhere digitally and not coming to ours, which by the way, that's okay. Like what, what that reflects to me is, wow, people are realizing in this moment something that has been true before, by the way. A lot of communities have been sort of quietly live streaming, um, but like our, our communities are transgeographic already. At least yes. many of them are. And a place like Beit Chaviriim is a perfect example. I mean, I remember when we had you on the show, um, either just before or just after, we had Sandra Lawson, who was at the time and now not living in Atlanta, but who I know was deeply connected to your community. And I'm assuming is probably still connected to your community in various ways. And um, when you have a strong congregation like Beit Chaviriim, the I don't know the right term, like tentacles, fears, but like the, the tentacles, the ripples go out to the rest of the country. So I guess what I'd love to hear more of like, what does that mean? Like if, if Beit Chaviriim as one example, but not, not by any means, the only example is in this moment becoming a kind of transgeographic, how does that like change the game? We have to understand the kind of complexity of our communities. And I think that for a substantial, I don't know if it's a majority, but a substantial number of our members, they want to go to a place where they can see each other's faces. Um, one of the things that's come up on my Facebook group is when people have been trying to put liturgy in the main box, which then obscures, as they share the screen, it obscures people's faces. People have been reporting that people are saying, we rather see people's faces than have proficiency with the liturgy, you know, um, and that there needs to be other words. But in some ways, there is that connection. So I think that there's a balance between this idea of who do you know and what does that community look like versus how do I find the aspect of a service or a community feel that feeds my soul? And, um, you know, I, of course, I have an ego. So at first, you know, when my congregant said I was going to a different synagogue, 
you know, for about 30 seconds, I was like, oh, and then I was like, he's telling me this. There's something actually good here. Um, you know, I can withstand that, um, that little ego hit and, you know, be curious. And for him that there was this sense of, of comfort of returning to the synagogue of where he grew up and actually, again, kind of for him, this is a journey about finding connections. And what would it be is if we were as community leaders helping people be stewards of their own spiritual journeys and having these convening spots, but not having the entirety of Jewish life revolving around a service, but rather, you know, help people on their spiritual journey find what the good fit is. Um, and I think that if we were able to be open that way, the end goal is really about how do we live meaningful, thoughtful Jewish lives in the midst of a pandemic. And if we're able to do that, that creates a certain kind of resilience rather than being so focused on this idea of, oh, my members should be doing A, B, C, or D. It really is how do I steward the life of the people who are connected to me and trust me enough to find the resources that they need. I wanted to um, talk a little bit about, go back to what you were talking about at the very beginning about the idea of the phone calls and the, the, this question about that you just mentioned, the, the notion that I think when we think of a synagogue, we tend to think of it as surrounding a service, like you said, and that's the primary, that's the primary thing that a synagogue is about. And if you, if you want that, then you should be a member of a synagogue. If you're looking to have your Jewish life surrounding something else, then that would probably be a different kind of organization. And I'm wondering if maybe one of the ways in which the butterfly looks different on the other end of this is that that's not the way that we think of it. And and I guess I wonder about that. Can you talk a little bit about as as you start to see it or as you're starting to imagine it, then how does that change? Like, do, do we do we need as many synagogues or, or you know, is it possible that some things like the service, like, do I need, like, for example, do I need to participate in a service led by the same person who's going to be calling me on Sunday to check in with me, you know, and to give me the pastoral help that I might need? And um, or is it possible that that we can you know pull apart some of those functions and say, well, maybe we only need a few national level services that people can attend, you know, and that what's local becomes something else. That feels very exciting to me. And in part, I actually think that most of our communities are, are needing a heavier pastoral response than we're able to deliver. Mm -hmm. And that when we are putting so much of our energy in trying to produce a meaningful service, then I think that we lose some of that um, potential to actually support people um, where they are. And just given who we are, we have different people leading. And we, we've done something um, through the leadership of um, our music director. We've, in, we've started inviting musical guest artists across the country to come and join our services. Um, and then, I have a friend who is a singer-songwriter out in San Francisco who sings social justice, music. Um, her name is Leah Rose. And so I was inspired to invite her. So, you know, in kind of a hybrid, we're now being, we're able to bring other people into our community across the world rather than having to pay, you know, scholars and residents or artists and residents fees. Well, we certainly have, um, been thinking about how do we support their parnasa, their their living, 
um, in doing so, but it has made it so much easier to kind of give this kind of textured experience. And it takes a little bit of um, weight off of our shoulders, particularly in this time when, as you're saying, there's so much loss that the pastoral need could be um, expanded if we were to carry the load or the burden for each other in this time. And that then Shabbat could be the ritual place where whatever work people are doing with their rabbis and their spiritual directors could be the kind of container where they're able to find what it is that they need. So I, um, Dan, I think we got to play more with this uh, caterpillar, chrysalis, <laughs> butterfly thing. I think there's a lot, a lot there. But um, I, so now I'm just, I'm whirling around with, uh, what what's the butterfly look like? And, and I, you said, you know, the butterfly still does sort of look like the caterpillar on the other. And I think that's actually profound and there's something there. And like, you kind of have to look closely what, to see it, by the way. Like, I think exactly. The, it's, you got to squint, you got to notice certain things. You got to look at the underside. Not, yeah. yeah. You know, that's um, the part so, that you usually look at. Yeah, so butterfly, caterpillar, chrysalis, metamorphosis. Great. Okay, so I want to sit with another piece that um, I would like to be part of the butterfly on the other end of mm. this. Um, and that's that, Josh, you've created a couple beautiful Facebook convening places in the midst of this pandemic that um, to go back to the butterfly, like I really think we might have felt them as a need of this moment, but I think are the kinds of things that we would need moving forward. They're the kind of groups that I saw them and I was like, oh yeah, that should obviously exist, like always. That like, it's it's one of those things where, like, how did this not, how wasn't this there already? Um, right. But that's not to, that you still did a especially holy service in creating them. But one that I want to name is you created a group that's called Spiritual and Communal Responses to COVID-19. And it's a gathering space um, really incredible diversity across religious traditions. Uh, I, I read through the thread of all the different moderators, and you've you've convened this really cool set of Christians and Muslims and Jews that are all um, coming from a wide variety of perspectives. And um, I have I've participated a little bit, but I've mostly just been reading and learning and exploring. And what I've loved about it is that you know it helps it helps you to realize that like in certain ways. Um, so there are things that feel like obvious to me that are as, as somebody coming from a Jewish frame of reference, or at least my specific Jewish frame of reference that are not obvious to people from other traditions and vice versa. There's things that people who are from a Christian or a specific Protestant Christian frame of reference or a specific Muslim reference that they just sort of throw out as like, oh yeah, every week we do this. Or, and it's like, wow, that's genius. Yes. I never thought of that. But like, it's your, it's your basic obvious inclination. And so I think that having a space like that is so, so important. Um, and having one that's big, that has tons of threads and tons and back, tons of back and forth is so powerful. But I, I guess what I would ask is like, in what ways is this moment one that we really just need to focus on the unifications of this moment, that we really need to be as Jews looking for wisdom in other traditions, noticing the parallels, um, and also to complicate it, like, in what ways um, might it be a challenge when we're, in, when we're in spaces like that and coming from a group that is generally a smaller group um, in the vast majority of areas of this country? Like, how do, we, how do we play that balance and how can sort of all of it collectively strengthen the, the religious spiritual ecosystem? For a long time, I felt like that um, 
Jewish contribution and interreligious or multi-faith space, depending. There's a lot of what I've learned in creating this group. There's a lot of feelings about which words you use. We were originally multi-faith clergy, and I dropped that because there was such a um, challenge around the word faith as a Christian hegemonic word. Um, and I realized in the South, I've just adopted it because it was shorthand and it's easy. And I actually look forward to perhaps a little bit down the road, really diving more deeply into um, how we can do this, because I actually think, um, you know, parts of what people were saying is let's not get bogged down in the language because a rabbi started this group and actually this group is not acting in hegemonic ways. And, um, and I think that it says something that a, um, queer Jewish man created this container for um, this place where people of all different faiths and traditions and religions and spiritualities are gathering. And one of the things that I have felt about my Jewish um, spirituality and my religion is, is that, and for me, being a rabbi means I have a Jewish toolbox that I can actually serve humanity. Whereas I think a lot of times where we've gotten stuck as rabbis, particularly, is that we have a Jewish toolbox to serve Jews. And, um, and I think that when we stop short of just serving Jews, we're doing a huge disservice to the actual impact that Judaism and our tradition can have on the world. And so I think this group is an example of how just some ways that I have understood what does it mean to be a religious minority and create safe space has allowed different voices um, to emerge in supportive ways that are you know, just kind of by nature to how I walk in the world. Just like I've begun to learn from these other traditions, what are things that they do on a regular basis that um, have been really profound or even some of the struggles, like thinking about how Christians um, serve communion and what that means has helped me go back and try to figure out what, what are the most essential pieces. And if we were to totally change, let's say how we read Torah, which I think we're having to do right now, it's not that I'm making the, you know, those two are not the exact same things, but they have a similar kind of importance into the centrality of what our um, worship is like and what our um, community experience is like. And so there's also a lot of empathy and I can ask somebody who is not so attached to things as the way that they've always been for their wisdom in terms of looking in. And that, that's where I think that we can be incredible help to each other because there are ways where when we've always done something in a particular way, it's really hard for us to see um, what that next evolution is. It's part of what I'm saying. Like, I don't know the caterpillar knows that it's going to become that butterfly. Right. And so, um, <clears throat> but sometimes those of us who are looking outside, we can begin to see, if you've ever seen a chrysalis, you can begin to see the, the wings actually through the, you know, and so somebody else can help us see what it is that we're emerging into. And I think that's incredibly for me, there's a lot of resonance, there's a lot of power, and that I want to be able to offer that, and I want to be able to receive that. I'm curious, I guess, uh, how do you think we're doing on that score? Because, um, you know, sometimes I, I, you know, I think it's part of the nature of this podcast to be a little critical, but then sometimes when I look at it, I, I'm like, I think we're doing pretty well, meaning that the Jewish community feels like it's shut down quite quickly, 
and went to digital quite quickly, you know, particularly thinking about synagogues that have largely aging populations. And I think they're mostly on Zoom. You know, it's it's pretty good, pretty great. And I wonder whether that has to do in part with our history of having these kinds of disruptions to our lives as Jews happening on a regular basis. And I'm curious, maybe also if you could draw the connection to whether you think or you've been seeing that, let's say, the LGBTQ uh, founded synagogues are doing better than others or, you know, are there are there groups that are kind of saying, well, like this is what happens, you know, like we, we move forward and and we can figure this out. And, you know, maybe the fact that it's a gay rabbi creating this group is no accident. Right. No, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, so I'll step back and I'll say that you know, Passover was one of the first of the holy days of any tradition. And I would say, you know, if I were to, I'm not someone who would grade the Jewish community, but if I were to grade us, I would say we, we did an A. Like with everything that was happening, we came together. And in fact, if there was anything, we had an embarrassment of riches. I mean, it really was about like, we overproduced if there was any kind of critique, but I, I, what I have just, what I want to call out for all these traditions, but I felt it so much as a, as a Jew and as a rabbi is, is that we want to serve our community so well that we really will, you know, people are putting their hearts and souls into what this moment can be. So much so that I think I'm saying, how can we pull back because there's just this. And then so Christians ask, what can we learn from you about Passover that we can take into our Easter services? And then with conversations, Muslims were starting to ask, what can we learn from Ramadan? You know, and then I've noticed in our high holiday conversations, people have asked, what can we learn about Easter <laughs> in terms of high holidays? And so there's been this really interesting kind of piggybacking that has happened. But I think that, that you're right. I actually have written an article where I talk about the destruction of the temple and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who has to go through, you know, a different kind of metamorphosis, but basically through a whole series of dealings, imaginations, he escapes Jerusalem in a coffin, might I say a chrysalis, and, um, <laughs> you know, emerges on the other side. And in some ways, I've talked about how his survival and stepping into the unknown, as I was talking about earlier, is what actually allows Judaism to survive. I don't think he had any idea of what it was going to be like, but he was willing to take these steps and that there was a way where his individual survival was completely intertwined with the survival of the Jewish people, in my opinion, or at least in our legend or our story. And then I think this additional layer, um, I know that because she did it in a very public forum, Rabbi Kleinbaum got a lot of criticism as well as praise and recognizing the similarities from the AIDS and HIV epidemic. Literally the same week, I had written something just to my community about the same thing, a little bit different, but we both were pulling on the same thread. So there was a moment where I think that you very keenly are aware that our congregation started in 1985. And then shortly after, they were kind of thrust into this, having to understand how some of their founding members were ill, were dying, and they created an organization called AIDS Chaim, which when people were afraid, they leaned into how could they offer support. And they created a meal network and supported people who were lonely and isolated, um, who were Jewish and living with AIDS and HIV. And so I do think, I mean, 
what I did intentionally in those first moments was call upon the strength of our own history. And I think that we can do that as Jews. And I think that LGBT folks understand that. And we know this kind of pivot and we know that we can survive on the other end. And I think that even just simply anybody who emerges out of a closet, dare I say a chrysalis and um, you know, and there it is, with all the forethought of what I knew my life was going to be like, I didn't know what my life was going to be like, but I had to take that step. And so I do think that there's an intuitive knowledge that we can bring. And I think that it is part of the Jewish toolbox that I'm talking about that can offer the world in the same way that the LGBT community has offered the metaphor of the closet that so many of us resonate with that aren't LGBT because we all have things that we need to emerge and be able to integrate into our lives. I'm curious to return or move forward into the high holidays specifically, because I think that uh, I'm curious what, how you would analyze sort of what the loss is, right? Like, so with, with Passover, so let's say we got an A. I agree that we got an A on Passover. I think we, we produced a lot, or maybe I'd say A minus, but I, certainly in the A range. We, we um, got to give uh, room for growth. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but, I think that we, I don't know, that feels like it was one of our, one of our natural strengths. I think like I, I grew up, I was better at math than I was at history. So like it, it felt like less of a huge deal if I did well on a math test than a history test. It feels like Passover, we, we generally are ready to adapt and do interesting customized things at Seder's. High holidays to me is, is our weak spot or one of our weak spots as a, as a people. I don't think the typical person walking into a high holiday service walks out with the sense of fulfillment of connection that they have at a Passover Seder, um, even though a, a huge scale of people do both. So I guess what I would ask is like, when we think about the high holidays, how should we conceptualize it? Because I think for a lot of people, we're sort of talking this talk as if, oh my gosh, in-person high holidays are so great and meaningful. And like, it's such a shame that we have to do them via Zoom. When I think if we're even those of like, look, I'm a highly engaged person. I like synagogue services, um, even fairly traditional ones. I like, I can do that, and I I don't know that it's really an honest thing to say that an average person is really sort of taking on the the parts of atonement and like experiencing huge growth. Like, I think. We should be realistic and say, okay, maybe some of this is working. Maybe some of this is people like being in a room with 500 or 200 or 60 folks and just having a sense of like bigness or maybe they're there because it's guilt. Like, I guess what I would ask is like, what are we actually losing? Like, as opposed to saying, oh, it's so good in person and Zoom, we have to try and simulate that. Like, what is it that High Holidays actually have done a good job of and and like... Are you thinking about sort of simulating that or alternatively, are you looking to this high holidays as like, well, maybe we're not going to replicate. Maybe we're not going to simulate. Maybe we're actually going to achieve a different set of things, sort of take a different set of vitamins, um, emerge as a different kind of butterfly to use that one one more time because, you know, we haven't done it enough. Like, how should we approach all this um, as we have a few months till Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur? All along, I've been saying that we need to grieve all of the losses and what we might even think are little losses in order to clear the path for what is new. To me, grief allows us to let go of the things um, that we're holding on to. And so I think that 
any spiritual leader that is hoping to achieve something new has to help their community grieve. You know, and so, um, you know, for the last couple of years, I've been helping create um, alternative high holy day services that I wish I were leading, um, but people want me in the main sanctuary. And so, you know, going on a hike up to here in Atlanta, Arabia Mountain, and we've had something called Shofar on the Mountain, and bringing in the outdoors, there already are ways where I think, you know, as I was saying, that there are some things that were already begin to fray with that traditional model. Regardless of how beautiful and lovely high holiday services are for my community, I could not imagine a three and a half, four hour Zoom experience um, of high holy days. And that it would be, for me, insanity to try to recreate something like that. Insanity, and I, if I were to be honest, it would also be vanity. Like I would be putting my ego ahead of what the community's needs are personally by making that choice. Rabbi Michael Adam Latz and a number of other people pulled together um, some folks to a phone call out of my Facebook group um, to start talking about this. And there, Rabbi Stephanie Colin, amongst the presenters, to me had this idea that just resonated with my heart, which was like, what if we looked at this as the 10 days of teshuva, the, you know, the 10 days of repentance, and not try to do high holiday services in these two or three, um, maybe four days, but really populate the 10 days. What if we created a toolbox and understood what we're hoping to achieve? And so, I, you know, I've already started thinking about all of the different kinds of components and, you know, what would it be for there to be stuff that's geared towards people that they could do with their families, people could do as individuals. Will it be safe enough for people to gather outside in small groups of like 10? Maybe, I don't know, but there could be a module that way or in small Zoom groups. And then try to figure out what are the large convenings? Like, do we want to hear Kol all chanted? Um, you know, for my community and really what has rocked the Jewish community, and I think many Many faith communities, certainly not the Quakers since they're silent, but um, is this idea of what will happen to singing. And I think as we're looking at it, we're hearing the message, which is an incorrect message. It's like we can't sing. And and it is not true that we can't sing. We can't sing in groups together. And the technology is not quite there yet where we can sing. We have a 40-some-odd-person chorus and a huge band as a part of our congregation that is going to have to take a different form. But, you know, we're still having chorus practice. Our chorus gets together every Monday, and they are doing things together on Zoom. They're not doing what they were doing before. Um, And sometimes it's fellowship, but sometimes it is putting on headphones and singing along their part with others. And so I don't think we're quite, we don't quite know what will emerge yet. But to me, this is the opportunity, as you're pointing to, Lex, to look at what are the threads, the strands of what makes a high holy day meaningful, and then how can we toss it all up in the air and let it land, and then I would say curate, or that there may be a way where I'm doing some of these offerings as a spiritual director, these are my skills, and that this rabbi has the set of text study skills and that we could kind of cross pollinate our um, communities that way. Those are the kinds of um, ways that we're beginning to look ahead. And I know that we're going to start kind of mapping out in our community, 
who lives in what neighborhoods. You know, perhaps there's a way we could socially distance and hear a shofar blast. Perhaps that there is a way where, um, you know, we could put up signs. You know, one of the things I've learned from some of my Christian friends, because they're neighborhood centric on my page, they put up signs that are either advertising or hopeful in a particular way. Like, so what if we did something like that where people had yard signs that, you know, had a Jewish, a simple Jewish teaching. But I just think that there are so many different ways um, for Shavuot, which, you know, is much sooner. Um, we've had a tradition where I build an ice cream mountain and tell the story of receiving the 10 commandments as I build this huge Sunday. Well, we're trying to send ice cream and toppings to all of our families so that they can build it along with me um, at home. And while it will be a much smaller mountain, um, I think that there are ways where we can actually have people touch and taste and smell and hear the High Holy Days rather than it be this semi-passive or kind of just auditory and linguistic experience. But there may be a way we can inhabit this much more fully. I think we're running out of time. I just want to make two comments. One is that uh, this is an amazing Shavuot tradition that I have not heard about before, which I'm very excited about, the ice cream mountain. So even more meaningful for those of us who count with the Karaites who always have Shavuot on a Sunday, literally on a <laughs> Sunday, the day of the week. Ah, so yes. I, I might have to follow your tradition now. Yeah. So that's great. I mean, the other thing that, you know, maybe is a, a conversation for, for a next conversation, but as you're describing that reimagining the high holidays, even in a smaller way, all, all the more so in a bigger way, that's a task that's too heavy for one organization or one person. And it feels like there is a need to collaborate in a way that we've never collaborated before, uh, which some of our institutional structures stand in the way of because there are these concerns about competition and about how are we going to survive. And they're all, yeah. those are all real concerns. But I mean, on the, but if we don't figure out a new way, then probably none of us are going to make it. So it's kind of, it, it's one of these, uh, it feels like a, it feels like something, something significant there, how to, how to try to combat the, the concerns, those local concerns, so to speak, uh, to, for this more sacred purpose. Yeah, you know, but to me, what the issue is, is that not everybody has actually come to the conclusion that people can not safely gather in, mm -hmm. in you know, even in groups of 50, it seems almost impossible to me. There's so many hur hurdles and obstacles. And so until we all yield to that reality, it's going to be hard to actually, because we have to have the same kind of conversation. And when people are still holding out for something that may not be in the best health or well-being of our community, it makes it a challenging way to do the partnership that you're talking about. We have time, but I do think that reality needs to sink in. I really want to praise what you said about like oh, yard signs or are there ways that shofars could be heard in different areas like uh, that that i mean thinking about the high holidays in that way actually it like gets my energetic juice it gets me really excited it's like i yeah. um i'm a nerd enough that i like am interested in some of the original context of shofar in like the earliest jewish text and like it's clear that the shofar was kind of a thing that one person would blow and then like a, a thousand feet away or whatever the maximum distance that you could still hear it, like the next person would blow it and sort of pass this down and you would sort of notify people far away that, oh, like important occasion yes. is here or danger is approaching. or whatever. And like 
it might not be doable in every community, but in communities where people do live in the same neighborhood, uh, I'm thinking in Providence, Rhode Island, where I live geographically is only like three miles by four miles. And I think that we could very easily pull this off. It might require what you said before, which is communities of different denominations or otherwise partnering and finding folks in different neighborhoods. But like we could create a train of like shofar blast in the southeast corner of Providence, shofar blast in the next. Like we could do that. And like how... How cool right. would that be? Like that yes. was like, like Jews are taking over the town today. Like, like it gets me really excited, and I never would have thought of that if I didn't open up that thread that you gave us. Of you know, okay, what does this look like if it's not in any one space or in the computer, but just sort of spread out around our our neighborhoods? Right, and I don't think we can get there if we're still like hanging on to that. Um, the, the cantor chanting the Una Tanatokef in this particularly beautiful way that we've always had every single year. And so that is really valid and we might not have it this year. And so are we going to let what we don't have prevent us from having what we could have? Thank you so much, Josh Lesser, for joining us. I mean, there's so much more well, to talk you. about and maybe, maybe we'll try to sneak you back by the high holidays, but um, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to encourage you as we close this episode out to please, please be in touch with us. There are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. And, you know, be in touch with us with general questions, with curiosities, with your own thoughts. Um, but especially if you have particular ideas for the high holidays, models that we could utilize in synagogues or maybe specifically not in synagogues, please, please send them our way. We love, love hearing from listeners on all those fronts. So here are the different ways you can be in touch with us. First, there are our Facebook pages, Jewish Live, that's all one word, or Judaism Unbound. Those are the two pages. There's also our websites, jewishlive.org or judaismunbound.com. There is our Twitter handle, which is just at Judaism Unbound. And there are our email addresses, dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way. And you can do that via judaismunbound.com slash donate or through jewishlive.org slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.